Hey, all right. Welcome to the final episode of Life's Work. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed the series so far and hope you enjoy this final episode too. I first met Laura and Mike when I interviewed Laura for my podcast, Better Yet, which ran from 2016 until the end of 2019. But I am thrilled to let you know that Better Yet will be coming back next Thursday, September 10th. Better Yet is a long-form conversation about music. You can find it wherever you're listening to this podcast, and I'd like to invite you to subscribe to it and to check out some of our past conversations that are in our archives with folks like Steve Albini, Sadie Dupuis, Lauren Denizio from Warriors, Mikey Erg, and over a hundred more. And more to come, starting next week when I talk to Namdi, Chicago's prodigal son. We'll see you over there. For now, enjoy the show. This is Laura Stevenson, leading a chorus of friends through the closing section of Montauk Monster, the ninth track on her second album, Sit Resist. You record the claps and all that at Alex's? Yeah, yeah, the claps. And that was the same night that we did the singing saw stuff with Anne Marie um, because she was there and she helped us clap and you can hear her laughing in the background. So yeah, it's it was just all of us. I think I was I yelled, "He's a crazy guy!" about Steve, <laughs> and somehow we kept that. So that was fun. But he, he's a crazy guy. <laughs> <laughs> Sit Resist has been remastered at Abbey Road Studios and will be reissued by Don Giovanni Records this Friday, September 4th, 2020. Life's Work is a podcast about Sit Resist, the story of a songwriter finding her people and people finding her songs. I'm Tim Crisp for Better Yet, and this is Life's Work. Sit Resist was released on April 26, 2011. The album title, as we've learned, is a reference to motion. We saw the ways Laura gained momentum in the months and years that led into Sit Resist. And looking at the years that followed, we see references to that same motion in the title of Laura's follow-up records. Wheel continues. Cocksure continues with assurance. The big freeze, don't fret. We'll thaw out with the spring. But part of being in creative motion is that you don't stop to survey the scene. I didn't have like a vision. I just was making the thing, you know, like, but there was no like, this is my grand opus, this is my swan song, this is my introduction to the world, you know, like, it, it's either like, I don't know, I just didn't really think about what statement I was making by making it, I just wanted to make it. When it comes to narrativizing her career, Laura's far too humble to make declarations. In fact, we'll be hearing a lot more from other people on those topics this week. But her statement goes a few different ways. Mike Campbell is Laura's partner, her bandmate, and is keen to the changes Sit Resist brought to Laura's career as a musician. I think of Sit Resist as sort of the beginning of Laura contending with the idea of this is what I'm going to do for a living and career. And it, it definitely, you know, having been a part of it, was when the corner got turned and it was like, this is what we're doing. We're dedicating our lives to facilitating being able to do this as a career and as a profession. I mean, Laura hasn't had a job since the touring cycle. You know, like it's been her job um, ever since. So it is sort of the, the corner being turned to this is something we are just doing for fun to being this is something we're doing for fun and we want it to be our jobs because it's fun. <laughs> and every other job we've worked has not been fun. <laughs> so why don't we do the thing that's fun for our job? 
Jeff Rosenstock is one of many who can speak to the fact that when a record like Sit Resist was released on a punk label like Don Giovanni, there was a monumental shift in the way punk was seen from the outside and from the inside. I think a lot of our bands that didn't really sound, that didn't easily fit into any niche, niche, how do you put Nietzsche? Nietzsche? Yeah, that didn't fit into any Nietzsche. I think a lot of our bands just found each other. Uh, and I think that's how we maybe reached a non-traditional audience. And like, you know, we would obviously like cross paths with pop punk bands and punk bands and play punk houses and all that shit. Um, but I, you know, there was just a handful of bands from that time uh, that I think, like, I, I think of the sidekicks in the same way. I think of good luck in the same way um, that we were just making a different kind of beast. And even though Laura's music was not like, you know, was not punk, like was not, it didn't, it wasn't power chords and a, like a fast backbeat or anything like that. You know, um, I think that we all kind of just bonded with each other. Uh, the fact that like, we kind of felt like the freaks in this, uh, in this scene where people, you know, really want a band that fits into the punk mold easily. And none of us were quite, you know, maybe we kind of started doing that. Maybe that's how we all started off, but I think we all just kind of like grew into making weirder and weirder shit. And I wonder if that's just because of the other stuff that we were listening to, like, you know, Akron family or islands or just like being inspired by some music that was coming out of Athens, like we versus the shark. Uh, like we were all just kind of taking it all in. So maybe that's why it was there for the like, outsiders you know i mean it was a great punk record and i think people were also starting to look for different things from punk we remember joe steinhardt of don giovanni records there was like stuff like against me and defiance ohio and there were there were like these other bands at the time that were punk but they weren't like hardcore and they weren't thrash and they also weren't like um pop punk but they were clearly punk bands and i think people started to really explore that kind of thing and what could you do through the punk lens there were you know planet x records or no idea records were sort of starting to make room for acoustic guitars um in punk i guess if you know i mean again those bands i very much still consider to be punk hard stop you know those are punk bands whereas i wouldn't call laura a punk band in a traditional sense, even though we come from punk and sort of approach things with the DIY punk ethos, which I think before they sort of became canonized as like one of the most important indie rock records ever, I think Neutral Milk Hotel was very much of that as well. They were very DIY. People tend to want to categorize and define art in the moment. It's how we make sense of it. It's just how it is. Recently in music, that definition often entails a number and a decimal point. And while that's become one of the ways we've become accustomed to canonizing music in the last few years, not only is that a pretty recent development, but it's pretty removed from the way people actually listen to music or share it. Lucy Dacus shared the story of the first time she heard Laura Stevenson on episode three of this podcast. Here's the story of the person who brought the record over. Yeah. The person that came over and showed me a record was a punk kid, like an anarchist punk kid, and got the record at Vinyl Conflict, which is this punk record store in Richmond. 
so I was aware of that from the very beginning and like, oh, why is she the exception to the rule here? Like, why are the punk kids getting into Laura Stevenson? Because I was, you know, I went to a ton of punk shows. I went to like, you know, a show almost every night in high school and like was kind of into noise and like had a bunch of punk friends that, I don't know, that ethos was so strict in the circle that I was in. Like being, people would talk about what it means to be punk more than any other place than I was. It, it was so like concerned with defining itself. And I felt like she was breaking those definitions, but why was she still allowed? And I loved it because I, I think that's another thing that kept me from making music or sharing music was that, you know, I just had an acoustic guitar, but all the music I liked was like Ramones ripoff bands. <laughs> so I think it was encouraging to see somebody not be beholden to genre, no genre, no form, no uh, snooty recording. Like she, it just didn't seem like she was trying to please anybody. And maybe that's why punk got into her so much. Like it's not super o overt, but like, yeah, punk, I guess punk as I understood then. And maybe now it's like, you aren't answering to anybody. Like you're doing precisely the fuck you want <laughs> to do. <laughs> I'm allowed to say fuck on the podcast. I don't know. <laughs> As Laura's music filtered out to people who didn't give much of a shit about genre or what score a record was given, it laid an influence on an entire generation of young songwriters like Lucy Dacus and adult mom Stevie Knight. Many others, like Waxahachie, Mitski, and Mal Bloom, put their records out on Don Giovanni. And there are plenty more. Some of our time's biggest indie rock stars, along with Stevie, and Lucy's bandmates in Boy Genius, Phoebe Bridgers, and Julian Baker. Julian Baker contributed an essay to the Sit Resist reissue. In it, she writes, The record is tender, honest, and invites you into a vulnerable place, and quells the vulnerability with candid but gentle testaments of living drawn from a deep well of experience. Laura's influence on this generation is full scale, as Stevie and Lucy can attest to. Uh, she played a show at Strange Matter, which doesn't even exist anymore in Richmond, before I had recorded any music, I'm pretty sure. And my friend like literally pushed me into her and was like, this girl's writing songs that are kind of like yours. And like, she was just outside and I was just like, yeah, I, I love your music. And she was just like, oh, so you write songs? Like being really sweet about it. And now that I like do shows and I'm like, have had interactions with fans that have been either sweet or uh, gotten weird. <laughs> like she was so patient with me and I definitely wanted to exit, like not be bothering her anymore at all. But I remember, you know, being very nice. So we have technically met before <laughs> we first toured together um i think it was 2017 i didn't know her we had never really met and i was really fucking nervous you know because of how long i'd been listening to her and i was like huh like this really this is gonna happen like huh and you know we met She's amazing, like the most humble person in the entire world, like just a nerd and like a freak like me, you know, <laughs> I was like, whew, wiping the sweat off. But 
there was a night where I asked her to sing one of my songs with me and we practiced it in my car and we practiced it, ran it a few times and then we just ended up talking about the music industry and what we want from our musical lives and our you know as songwriters and 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 what kind of like career stability like what does that look like and you know she has been doing this for so much longer than I have and that conversation that we had about you know like what we want from this and and you know we grounded each other in a really real way that completely changed my perspective on music as an industry and what I would want out of this type of career, quote unquote career, you know? And I think that was a moment where, you know, we're, we're similar in the way where we kind of always think about quitting this. And I know that she's been very open about that in her songs, you know, in her lyrics. Um, and I think I'm, and I say that she's humbled me in that way because I was afraid to uh, navigate that doubt and she navigates doubt in her songwriting but also you know she's a wonderful friend and a wonderful person who is willing to be open about that um yeah and and that I mean that specific conversation I don't know we must have been talking for like an hour um but it's just something that I return to constantly like all of the time (laughs) nina corcoran is a music journalist from boston now residing in chicago she's written for stereo gum npr pitchfork and dig boston in 2019 she reviewed laura's fifth album the big freeze for pitchfork i think one of the things with laura and with sit resist is that it's a record that people find i think maybe part of it and this is kind of hard to gauge since I like read music criticism at that time, but not as constantly as I do now. I definitely read it every day, but maybe it's because it felt like no one was really talking about hers, like in a critical sense on, on, you know, music publications or radio stations or what have you, where like, I think it just naturally felt like a, a like quiet discovery in part. Cause I, literally was you know handed the cd from someone but i would imagine for others that's probably a big factor is that it feels like such a personal narrative on this album it feels like such a personal way of retelling it then coupled with the fact that when you go like even now when you when you go to laura stevenson shows it's like you can go with a bunch of friends but it feels like you're watching her like by yourself not in a sad way i don't think that's a sad thing but i know all the times i've seen her I'm physically standing next to friends or my partner or whomever, but I feel like it very much feels like you're sitting there hearing someone play your songs just for you in like a very one-on-one type of way. So I imagine, you know, I can't say for sure, but I feel like maybe that feeds into why people have held it so closely, especially as time has gone on, just the nature of like, that kind of magical realization of like, oh, wait, you listen to this person too? Like, you know who this artist is? You really love this album too? Yeah, it's one of the few, and including in her catalog, that wasn't, you know, heavily covered at the time. 
someone who writes about music, what's the first quality in Laura's music that you present? Like, what's the main attribute for you? Again, feels objective to say Laura has an incredible voice, but she really does. And again, that's not something that, while it improved over the course of her records, it doesn't feel like it was ever bad at, at one point. But I think the way she's singing on this album feels very, like, not even necessarily unrehearsed. It just feels very impulsive, like I was talking about earlier. And because of that, it feels like someone who either had a melody come into their head and started singing it and hit record at that moment. But it's, like, very innate. And Laura's voice on this, I really appreciate how she can sing both really beautifully and, like, gracefully sliding up into falsettos and whatnot. But she also has this really, like, almost scratchy, like, clarity to her voice that, again carries her emotions very well but very truthfully and I think there's no masking how she's feeling or where she's at as she's singing. There's been a large number of artists in the last four or five years who really seem to be influenced heavily by Laura. Some of those people have been kind enough to appear on this podcast, but she's definitely been a major influence on the last few years of indie rock. Yeah, definitely. I mean, like, I don't know, I feel like this style of music was popular in like maybe the early mid aughts, but it's also very much having its renaissance right now, which explains why, you know, everything from Phoebe to Soccer Mommy to Boy Genius, it's really weird to think how this should have been picked up and heralded on a on a much bigger scale than it was. And it's strange now to think it's like kind of weird to realize that it could be looked back as like this like overlooked, you know, old relic. And it feels weird since I feel like I've been listening to it consistently for so long now. You've written about Laura and I know that that has been a, a bit of a fight for you and for a lot of great writers David Anthony and Dan Ozzy pushing for coverage of this what feels like someone who uh in a different time is what this would be the critical darling of a different age yeah it's interesting it's like sometimes I don't know. A lot of times you just wish you could grab someone and like either bring them so in so they could be listening through your headphones and hearing like what you're hearing in that moment or more often than not, and this is the case with Laura, you wish you could take someone and like put them in that live setting and just be like, just listen to this 40, like listen to this 45 minute set and then you can do whatever you want after, but just sit there and listen because there's that type of like wrapped attention and a very quiet attentive audience and Laura obviously just belting her heart out and it makes me think a lot of how long you just have to continue to be like hey I think this person's really great and like constantly try to find outlets who will let you talk about that to a wider range of of potential readers or potential listeners but also just to do that one-on-one with people because eventually 
they'll hear, hear you out and uh, give them a try. But it's weird seeing the long game being sometimes the only route for people, even though it feels so obvious that their talent should be the only merit needed. There's a certain duality that exists with being the person who's ahead of the curve. The sacrifice that comes with being the one who opens the doors. Music fans will think of the Velvet Underground, Big Star, The Replacements. Comedy fans might think of our friend Chris Gethard, who, like Laura Stevenson, comes from a punk background and has records out on Don Giovanni Records. In asking Chris why he used Runner for his HBO special career, Suicide, we sort of drifted into a territory that many Laura Stevenson fans know quite well. It was really intentional for me to use Laura's music. First of all, because I do feel like I'm part of a community. I feel like I'm on the fringes of the punk community. I'm on Don Giovanni Records. I go and I play fest. And all of that, all of that is because it's, it is a set of ethics that I grew up with. So I, I got to use artists that represent what I've always believed in. And Laura certainly does. But I'll also say this, and I don't want this to come off as judgment in any way or disrespect, but I feel like I'm a comedian that a small amount of people love and really get. And those are the people that support me. And then I've come very, very close to bigger stuff a number of times. I think I am someone where I would bet a lot of people have said, how can this guy keep coming this close and working this hard and not quite getting there, so to speak? And I will tell you, I have for many years been baffled as to how, like you said, people still kind of have to find their way to her music. It hasn't busted out in that way where something just kind of avalanches. It is still that fight. And I do not, for the life of me, understand it. So I will just say, I think there's a part of me that it felt really meaningful to use Laura's music for a lot of reasons. The lyrics really reflected the summer I was talking about in the show. It was the summer where I got to know her best, where we really leaned on each other. Also, I want to put her fucking music on HBO because she deserves it. Chris hits on the feeling as it exists from within, but also the way it exists from the fans' perspective of wanting your favorites to get what they deserve. It's something Laura and I talked about on Better Yet in 2016. But like, I just don't give any of that shit any weight anymore, yeah, which is yeah, like, yeah. I don't know. I used to resent it so much that like critics just didn't seem to care about us. We were never cool. You yeah, know, like yeah, yeah. we were like a music fans band, but not like a critic pick. Right after the cut on that clip, I went on a bit of a rant about a website. But it seems like there's more to be gained at this point by listening to what music fans have to say. About Laura Stevenson. I don't know. I, I love going to Laura's shows now because they're, I mean, they're, I always love going to Laura's shows, but it's been really nice off Big Freeze to see the people at Laura's shows and see them emotionally react the way that I have felt all the time. And it makes me think of times where we've played shows like at a punk house on that tour that we're talking about and people were too drunk and loud to like actually give a shit. Uh, or pay attention or even notice that somebody was playing because they're playing quietly or think about Laura at Minnesota's and uh, like think about like these drunk assholes like leering at a lady playing the guitar uh, and to see Laura 
playing a bunch of shows on the big freeze in 2019 and see the people just like standing mouths agape uh in awe of uh of of quite honestly like a very humble and truly funny and just talented and communicative songwriter uh it just like it's it just feels amazing and i feel like where laura's at i think she's like i it's just so cool to see how she's found her people and how it's grown and how it's like a unique batch of people who i don't really see at other shows necessarily you know i think her music is really transcendent and i think that it speaks to lots of people and it's cool to see it seeing more people you know she's established a longevity in her career and her writing every one of her albums i can confidently say are great (laughs) and every one of her albums shockingly gets better and better and better that is like such a hard thing and like the one of the rarest things that a songwriter can achieve like it's mind-blowing to me um it's really it's really fucked up and it's like but i think that that's a that's testament to her as she is a grower like she grows on you there's no gimmick you know like she is just honest and that's fucking hard to do and yeah i think the longevity thing is what i kind of get emotional about when i think about her as a as an artist you know because i actually i think of her being like a lucinda williams who will just write forever you know as long as she can hopefully because i just believe that she's going to continue to make work that resonates and hopefully that doesn't come off as like a pressurey thing. I just, you, know, <laughs> you better, you better keep writing. I don't, I mean, I've known Laura for a long time and I've lived with Laura for a long time and she, she doesn't take bullshit or suffer bullshit, you know? So it, it is just, there's a lot of dumb, annoying, senseless, pretty pointless and ego driven things that you have to do in order to continue to be able to make a living playing music and that you know laura said to me a a number of times that she likes writing songs and everything else is kind of like she could take her leave (laughs) you know but i mean sitting and writing a song that's amazing doesn't you know facilitate necessarily the life as a person who's professionally making music but i think it is a matter of like i think she just sees how pretty gross the whole operation is as a whole um and games you have to play or, you know, pretend like you're not playing, but you really are playing. Because if you don't, who knows how it'll affect you, you know, like, so I think that she's pretty, I don't think she has patience much for it, you know, which is cool. I mean, it's like, I think that that's cool that <laughs> she doesn't have patience for it. I thought it was like a perfect record. I can't imagine Laura saying that about anything she's ever recorded and probably not just Laura, like any artist, but as an outsider, um, I thought it was a pretty perfect record. I thought it really documented what they were at the time um and it really was was really what i wanted what i was hoping it would be um where it felt like it was a punk record but it was also like a beautiful record folk record you know it didn't sound like traditionally punk but then it was still like a like it felt like a punk record and not like a um 
something else. The way I think about Laura's legacy is that at some point, and I don't, I don't say this in a way that that should translate to uh, defining success by certain parameters. Uh, I think Laura is incredibly successful. I think she's made five or six records that, that have touched people in really, really big ways. I think people who are discovering Laura in the present tense have this vast, beautiful, incredible, profound body of work to dig back into with all these other records. And that's kind of how I think about Laura's legacy is that she hasn't made a bad record is that she won't make a bad record. Um, like, and that's the thing. That's just fucking, that's a fucking cool ass thing about Laura. She will not make a bad record. Like she's not going to put a bad record out. So I think that's her legacy. I think her legacy is good. I think there are some people who like, you know, they get a spark and it becomes this thing. And then like, they kind of like, ride that out and see where it plateaus and in my mind i see laura as a person who's just been gradually building and finding her people and finding her bedrock and finding you know people who would see it and hear it and understand it and i think that every person that she finds will probably dig back into other records and be like oh shit this one's a banger too ah man these are all good you know that's how i think about it when you track the movements of this story that's what it's been. Finding your people. Finding people who are creating paths that aren't previously laid. And using their resources to create communities. Chris Gethard was on public access. Jeff Rosenstock started, quote-unquote, a label that gave away records for free. Dave Garwacky filmed bands playing on a couch in his living room. That's punk rock. That's what independent is. That's doing it yourself. The Chris Gethard show was on public access. And I feel like it was like a, I mean, it's kind of the same thing Jeff was doing with quote unquote, or what Dave Grawacki was doing with, if you make it where it's like, okay, if this, whatever traditional, you know, means aren't paying attention to what we're doing, we're just going to, you know, we're going to make our own thing. Gethard wasn't on network TV or comedy central. He just, but he had a show he wanted to make. So we made it. And he had a niche group of people that loved it. Right. And so that the show was for them. And like, if you make it was for the people that loved it and quote unquote was for the people that loved it. Exactly. Not a huge amount of people, but it's a community and doing it makes it so that people all over the world can like join that community, you know, yeah. like sharing it with others. So it's not just a local thing. All of a sudden it catches on and then these small pockets of like-minded people catch on and that's how it spreads. Right. It's like, do it. It's just like a true DIY spirit of just like, why do I have to wait for someone to give me permission to do this thing I'm already doing? Like I already know people like it and respond to it. So I'm just going to make it myself. It really is that simple. Sometimes it's up to the rest of the world to catch up. Pink Couch was the punk scene progenitor of several similar internet sessions that have become a focal point of music in our time. The gold standard would become the Tiny Desk, which hosted Laura in 2019. From the first Pink Couch session in Dave and Mike's living room, to 12 years later, playing Living Room New York on the Tiny Desk. Wow. I've never played with a string section before. Thank you so much to everyone here for making this happen for me. This is the coolest thing I've ever done. <laughs> um, when I said yes to doing this tiny desk, I wasn't pregnant yet, and now 
the passage of time. <laughs> I'm six months pregnant <laughs> today, so it's cool. I, I barely have to move my guitar that much. It's a slight, slightly askew, but it kind of makes me look cooler. Time passes. Most things change. The great songs are ours forever. The greatest songs, like the greatest people, are the ones that encourage us to sing. And then Jeff asked me, and I was like, finally. <laughs> Somebody. So yeah, and I was just getting used to playing with all these random weirdos. Like Alex came in to the fold, Alex Billig. And then like Peter Nadeo came in afterwards, and he was a friend of Alex's from college, and he's just like the best guitar player. And Wenjie Ying, who plays violin, who was also Alex's friend from college. I guess it was a lot of Alex's college friends who also just all lived like within a two block radius of Mike's apartment. So like Alex lived super close. Peter lived super close. It was all, they were all just right there in Clinton Hill, Brooklyn. Clinton Hill just happened to be, I mean, literally like it was for me moving to Clinton Hill, Garwacki found the apartment. Like I just was like along for the ride. I was just like, they found a place that's where we're moving. <laughs> and then like, it just so happened four or five of some of the most consequential people in my life for the next like five to 10 years also lived there. <laughs> you know, just happened to like happen upon each other. So their floor was just always littered with bodies. And then they'd play it, they'd do a pink couch session in the morning. And Dave just wanted to share that with the world because he loved, he loved everybody that walked through his door, you know? I think about the people floating in and out. I guess you can, you can hear that in the arrangements on this record is that people float in and out of the record to come in and out, uh, you know, like they're hanging out for a little bit and then they leave. Steve D'Agostino uh, is a total freakazoid. I love him. There's banjo on one song, but Steve D'Agostino would play shows and he would just play the banjo the entire set as if it were a rhythm guitar. Watching the Blink-182 thing and watching The Room and eating Easy Mac and just like chilling with this weirdo. Um, and I just like fell in love with him. I was like, this is my friend. <laughs> and we've been friends ever since. I mean, it's hard not to say master of art. I remember hearing it before, like we helped pick the single from it. We worked together and like, this is what the single should be. Master of art. There's no reason that shouldn't have been the biggest song that year it came out. There's no reason. It's catchy, it's heartfelt, it's beautiful. Charismatic singer delivering it. I do miss the cans. Cool name, cool name for a band. Laura Stevenson and the cans, what the hell's that about? <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to hang out with him. I didn't know why, I was just like, I wanna be this guy's best friend. I like him so much. And that was like before, you know, like things got romantic. We were just like, I just was like, I have to be around him. <laughs> it was just like, we just became very close and on like a purely friend level, like it was just like, this person rules and I just want to hang out with them all the time. And then I started hearing her music and I was like, oh, I want to play music with this person. Oh yeah, for sure. But it was also like, cause I was in school, I was holding everybody back, you know? And like, I was holding him back cause I was going to Queens College every day, you know? And like, I didn't know where we were gonna be, but we were gonna just be like stuck kind of running in place, living in this place because I'm going to school and like, I don't know. I didn't even really want to be going to school, so it wasn't something that was like my grand aspiration. So it just felt like I was doing this like bullshit thing and I was kind of like keeping us from really moving forward. But yeah, I mean like every song's about Mike. <laughs> no matter what I want to do, 
It always ends up like being a love song. I love him. He's great. <laughs> you, one could look at it and could see just like a more direct statement about like your career as an artist. Oh yeah, true. Uh, um, but I think it's something that we're learning is that that's not where your head is at with what you're making. Yeah. I mean, like you could always just like be like, when's it going to happen for me? Or you could just be making shit that you believe in, you know, and just saying, you know, if you don't care about it, go fuck yourself. (laughs) How's that? (laughs) Did I do it? (laughs) Life's work is a production of Don Giovanni records and better yet to order the remaster of sit resist. Visit DonGiovanniRecords.com. Subscribe to Better Yet wherever you listen to podcasts. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's awful. Hey. Oh. Hey. <laughs> She's so cute. And we're back. <laughs>